All right, we come now this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. And as you turn there this morning, we're going to call on the name of the Lord together. Again, we're going to ask for help, for eyes to see, for ears to hear God's Word. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this time, Lord. God, we thank you for your faithfulness and the life of every Christian in this room to give us what we need for our souls. Lord, you are a faithful father to us, and you feed us with your word. And God, we thank you for this gift that you've given us of Holy Scripture. Lord, your word says that the unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Lord, your word says that your word is a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Lord, your word sanctifies us and we pray that prayer uh, of Jesus this morning. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. God, we pray that you would reign this morning in our midst as our king through your word. And so, Lord, we lift up our souls to you today and we ask, God, that you would feed us with your word, that you would nourish our souls with your word, that you would even rule us this morning with your mighty word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew 17 and we're going to read our passage together. Beginning in verse 14 this morning. This is God's word to Grace Community Church. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures And suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire. And often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. And they could not heal him. And Jesus answered. O faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is God's word to this local church this morning. Now, 
As we come to Matthew 17, before we break down our passage this morning, I want to remind us a little bit of the context. Last week we heard a sermon on the transfiguration, the very beginning of Matthew 17. And I want you to notice uh, in this chapter we have one of the most drastic contrast scene changes in the whole Bible. And I want you to think about that for a moment. That in scene one of Matthew 17... We are on the mountaintop glory of the transfiguration. And then boom, the very next scene, they come down from the mountain and we are face to face with intense suffering and intense conflict with the kingdom of darkness. It's a drastic scene change and it happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This story is intentionally placed right after the account of the transfiguration. And I want to mention two things this morning that that contrast shows us, that it reminds us of, that it teaches us. And the first is it gives us a reminder of what kind of king our Lord Jesus is. And so think about that. In Matthew 17, scene one, Jesus is the king of glory. On the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that for just a moment of time, the veil was pulled back. Greg taught us this last week. And Jesus began to shine brighter than the sun. Isn't that amazing? And when we say Jesus began to shine, we don't mean like Moses in the Old Testament that he was reflecting God's glory. We mean for just a moment of time, the veil was pulled back and the three disciples on top of the mountain, they saw the true nature of Jesus Christ. That's who he really is. And it was just veiled by the incarnation. Jesus is the shining one. And then in scene two, we get a revelation that this king of glory is also... The king of grace. This passage shows us that in this descent from this glorious mountaintop, the shining one, the Lord Jesus, the transfigured one, or to use the language of the Psalms. And I love this phrase, the one who covers himself with light as with a garment. He comes and he stands in the midst of sinners like you and me. In fact, in this story, we find him standing in the midst of a desperate father, a tormented son, and nine discouraged disciples. And I want you to know that about your king, about Jesus Christ. He is the king of grace. In other words, for as high and as lofty as Jesus is, and as much majestic glory as Jesus has, Our suffering is not offensive to him. He is willing to stand in our midst, be available to us, and and offer help and grace and mercy to sinners. He is mindful of sufferers. And the second thing you see, at the same time in this descent from the mountain... It's from the perspective of Peter, James, and John, you can get a quick reminder about the nature of the Christian life. So I want you to think about that. From their perspective, scene one, they are seeing uncreated glory for just a moment. They are gazing upon the glory of Jesus Christ. They're seeing Old Testament saints, you know, uh, dialogue with the Lord Jesus. They're hearing the voice of the Father boom from heaven. This is my son. That's scene one. 
And then these same three men, scene two, just a moment later, they are face to face with the power of the kingdom of darkness and intense human suffering. And that contrast from the perspective of Peter and James and John shows us a discipleship lesson. And that's where we're going this morning in this passage. That just that scene shift in chapter 17 shows us that the Christian life is supposed to be both worship and warfare. It's supposed to be gazing upon the beauty and the glory of Christ. But this descent down the mountain shows us that the Christian life is not supposed to be a never-ending worship service like what we're having this morning. Remember, that was Peter's suggestion on the mountain. Lord, can we just build a tabernacle? Can we just end it right here and just shut it down and just have a never-ending worship service on the top of the mountain? And Jesus calls his disciples down and he intentionally enters into this conflict with the kingdom of darkness. This is a reminder to us that this age... The age that we live in right now as followers of Jesus, it is not an age of never-ending worship services. It is an age to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is an age to conquer the enemies of Jesus. It is an age to work for our Lord, to serve our Lord in this world. And you've got to have both, worship and Warfare, Yes, praise God. In this age, we will have communion with Jesus Christ. We will worship. And sometimes that communion will be so sweet, it will feel like a mountaintop preview of the coming glory. But you also need to be informed that's not all life following Christ in this age is like. There's also an element of conflict and warfare. Our life is one of worship and warfare. That'll help you in those moments in your life where that first instinct in the face of difficulty is, why is it like this? It just shouldn't be like this. I feel pressure all around me. And you can be reminded in that moment of Jesus leading these three men down the mountain. And you can even imagine Jesus saying, welcome to the ministry. Behold my glory And take the gospel of the kingdom into the realm of the kingdom of darkness. Worship and warfare. This descent down the mountain becomes the occasion of one of the most foundational discipleship lessons that Jesus teaches his disciples. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about faith. Jesus is going to teach his disciples about the foundational importance of faith. And before we, before we go there, I want to set the stage, make sure we understand the, circum, the circumstances of this discipleship lesson. There's a few things uh, I want to say so that we're all on the same page as we get to Jesus' teaching. The occasion for this lesson is a desperate father that brings his demonized son to Jesus and he's calling out for mercy. And I want to say a few things about the son's condition. The ESV translates his condition in verse 15. Older versions of the ESV call him epileptic. 
And the newer versions of the ESV translate this word as seizures. But the word is actually the word for lunatic in verse 15. And that's how the King James rendered this word, uh, lunatic. Let me do a little bit of work here. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, demonic activity was often associated with nighttime and lunar cycles, the moon. Hence, lunatic, okay? Or this word could also be rendered moonstruck. This, this was a moonstruck man, a lunatic man. There's a different Greek word for the word epilepsy. This is the word for lunatic, okay? Rendering the word epilepsy or seizures can give the idea that anyone who suffers from a seizure is being attacked by a demon, and the Bible does not teach this. In fact, the Gospels draw relatively tight lines between sickness and demon possession. We can go back just a few chapters to Matthew 8 verse 16 and we are told that Jesus performed two distinct miracles. Uh, Listen to verse 16. It says that Jesus cast out demons with the word And healed all who were sick. In other words, he can do it all, but they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And then later, when we come to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus delegates this power and authority to the 12, again, we find two distinct miracles. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, when he gives the disciples authority, he says, heal the sick. And he says, cast out demons, heal the sick and cast out demons. And so I submit that we need to make the same distinctions that the Gospels make between sickness and demonic possession. And if we don't do that, then we'll be sending people to exorcists that need a doctor, that need healing. These are separate works. Everybody needs help from God, but we need to draw the same distinctions that the Gospels draw. This son was being tormented by a demon. He was an image bearer of God being attacked and tormented by one of the uh, workers of the kingdom of darkness. Now... We get more detail on his condition as we put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together. And in Mark's gospel, we find out that this son had been attacked from childhood. Which means that probably what's happening right now is we have a full-grown son that for decades has suffered these attacks of the enemy. Been happening for years at this point. And then we get some insight into the severity of these attacks. And the father tells Jesus that the demon has many times tried to kill him. Often he has thrown him into the fire. Often he has thrown him into the water. And that may may have even given the father some indication of the nature of this condition is demonic. It's not just how he had a random seizure in his bedroom. It's like, man, every time he starts walking by the fire, for some reason he falls into it. Or every time he's walking by the well, he, he, he's, he's trying to be drowned. And this is torment and it's very severe. And so we have this occasion in verse 15 and 16 that this desperate father comes to Jesus And he asked for mercy. 
because the disciples were unable to help this boy. Now, the disciples are unable to help. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't surprise me. I couldn't help them either. Okay. But if you're actually reading Matthew's gospel very closely, it is surprising that the 12 could not help this boy. And let me tell you why. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, King Jesus, who has all authority, delegated his authority to these 12 men in a special way, his apostles. And as he delegated that authority, King Jesus had given these men not only power, but a command to do miracles in his name. Listen to how uh, Matthew says it in Matthew 10, verse 1. And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so a right understanding of the circumstance is seeing that these twelve, the apostles, have failed to do what they have been authorized and commanded to do. By Jesus. And their failure sets the stage for two things. It sets the stage for the victory of Jesus. We'll talk about that. And it sets the stage for this discipleship lesson that we're going to dig into this morning. About the power of faith in Jesus Christ. First, the power of Jesus. Their failure becomes the backdrop of Jesus' victory. In other words, as we read this passage, what the disciples cannot do, Jesus can. Disciples of Jesus are weak in the story. Jesus is never weak. Jesus is victorious. Jesus conquers. And that's one side note to learn well. As you live the Christian life, servants of Jesus will fail you. They can fail you. Jesus never will fail you. That's why we don't put our hope in servants of Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. Their failure becomes the, the backdrop, the stage of a demonstration of the power of Jesus. Look at verse, verse 17. When Jesus says... Bring him here to me, talking about the son, those words, he actually transfers the fight, transfers the conflict between the demon and the apostles, and he transfers the fight, and now the fight is on the strong shoulders of the Savior, the Son of God. And note how Jesus overpowers this demonic realm. And he does it the same way every time in the Gospels, by his speech. This king overthrows his enemies by his speech. We get a picture of Jesus, a symbolic picture of Jesus in Revelation 19. On the final day, Jesus is the one who is returning on a white horse. In power and glory. And one of the things John says in this symbolic picture of Jesus is that he has a sword, but it's coming out of his mouth. Says it twice in Revelation 19. 
And you never know what sticks with your children. Different things sticks with, with different kids. But my youngest son loves this picture of Jesus. Daddy has a sword, Jesus. Uh, 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 Jesus has a sword, Daddy. Yeah, Jesus has a sword. It comes out of his mouth, Daddy. Yeah, it comes out of his mouth. It's a big sword, Daddy. It's a big sword. It's powerful. It's powerful, bud. This is the authority. That's a symbolic picture of the authority of the speech of Jesus. In, in other words, it's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. His speech is like a sword. It's the weapon that he conquers his enemies with. He slays the wicked with the word of his mouth. And we get a picture of that in Matthew 17. His speech is the means by which he slays his enemies. In other words, it's not even hard for him. I mean, don't you love that about Jesus, that when his power is displayed, it's not this, you know, hand-to-hand combat. We're wrestling back and forth, and we don't know who's going to win for a minute. He doesn't lift a finger. He just decrees it, and it is. This is the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 shows us our king on the battlefield overthrowing the devil with the word of his mouth. Gives you another glimpse into what kind of king Jesus is. He's not the kind of king that just stays on mountaintop glory in the throne room. This king marches down the mountain, gets on the battlefield, and enters into conflict with his enemies. And he overthrows them by his word. We are told in Matthew 17 that instantly, with a word from Jesus... That this son was healed. It was just as public as the disciples failure. Everybody around knew that it was done. No wonder Martin Luther when he, when he wrote that hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. No wonder he penned that little phrase. One little word shall fail him. We have a mighty enemy that seeks to work us woe. But all we need is one little word from Jesus Christ. And he's done. We see in this in this passage that demons cannot stand before the rebukes of Jesus Christ. They cannot. And so I want to remind us this morning of the power of Jesus. I want you to be encouraged that Jesus is stronger. The Bible calls the devil, 1 Peter 5, a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. And that's true. You're to be sober. You're to be watchful. But the Bible also calls Jesus a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in this passage, we see Jesus is a stronger lion than the devil. He's stronger than the devil. John says it this way. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. The power of Jesus is demonstrated in the disciples' failure. But that's not all. Their failure also becomes the occasion for a rebuke and teaching from the master, the Lord Jesus. First, I want you to notice verse 17 that Jesus comes down from the mountain. He assesses this situation and he indicts the whole generation as faithless. 
That's amazing. <laughs> In other words, his rebuke doesn't just go nine disciples, daddy, you know, uh, uh, son. He says everybody is faithless. This is a faithless generation, an unbelieving generation. He even says in verse 17, how long am I to be with you? And so I want us to learn this, that being in the presence of unbelief grieves Jesus Christ. He's not indifferent to it. In other words, as he stands in the midst of unbelief, it grieves him. And I want us to consider why. Remember, Jesus is the only one who came from above. He's the man from heaven. We're from below. He's from above. Jesus is from heaven, a holy place. He is the holy one. He's never sinned. He cannot sin. He recoils at sin. And, the, and, the one, and this is the one who was incarnate and came to dwell in the midst of this sin-soaked world. But he wasn't from this sin-soaked world. He was from heaven. And so you have this holy one standing in the midst of this world of unbelief. And it causes him to recall because of his holy nature. In other words, you need to understand that trusting his father, believing his father was as natural to Jesus as it is for me and you to breathe oxygen. And, 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 and just as, as immediately as you would notice oxygen supply being cut off, you couldn't help but notice it. Jesus cannot help but notice the presence of unbelief. He is the Holy One standing in the world of unbelief. And He cannot help but see it. And he cannot help but recall at its sight. And maybe you've never considered this before. This is an aspect, this is a part of Jesus' suffering. Dwelling amongst an unbelieving generation was part of the suffering that Jesus had to endure in his humiliation. I love the way one Puritan commentator said it. He said it like this, the heavenly Christ was beside the dunghill of unbelief. You had that contrast between holiness and sin. And his disciples, us included, we should learn this about our Lord. Unbelief grieves Jesus Christ. We should actually make that personal. Your unbelief grieves Jesus Christ. Hear that rebuke in verse 17. How long am I to bear with you? We are really good about downplaying sin, the sinfulness of sin. And one of the sins that we're really good at doing that with is unbelief, that it's not that bad. It's not that offensive to God. But unbelief is refusing to take God at his word. And we see in this passage that Jesus indicts it. In other words, there's, a measure, there's, even, there's even a rebuke in verse 17. How long am I to bear with you? And so what should we do? We should confess our unbelief as sin. We should confess it as sin. We should come to the Lord and ask him to help our unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. I don't want to distrust you. I want to trust you, Lord. We should ask God to take this unbelieving heart out of us. Take it out, Lord. Give me a heart that leans upon you like a child leans upon their father. 
Help me, Lord. There is no doubt that the disciples are part of the rebuke in verse 17 because later in verse 20, when the disciples say, hey, why could we not cast it out? Jesus says in verse 20, because of your little faith. They're part of this. They're part of this rebuke. And so I want, I want us to learn this. You can be a disciple of Jesus and yet be unbelieving. You need to know that. Or you could say it this way. Even those who believe the gospel have to repent of unbelief. We see that in this passage. Some people have this wrong idea that Jesus never rebukes true Christians. Well, he does it right here. How long am I to bear with you? Your unbelief is not a small sin and Jesus is not indifferent to it. In fact, there's a measure of anger in these words and frustration by Jesus Christ. How long am I to be with you? Bear with you. Verse 17. But I love how Matthew Henry puts this. He says, though Christ be angry, he is never unkind. Jesus doesn't just leave his disciples in their unbelief with this rebuke just ringing in their ears. How long am I to bear with you? Jesus leans in and uses this failure as an occasion to teach them to trust the Lord. To teach them to believe God. This is that fatherly you know, care the, that, that like a loving parent does when a child fails. You bring them along. You tell them what they did, but you bring them along. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He rebukes sin, but he's training us towards holiness with his word. And then we come to verse 20. And verse 20 is really the focal point of this passage. The main point of this passage is this instruction about faith from Jesus Christ to the disciples. And so let's read it again. Verse 20. He says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I want to mention four things about true faith from this verse and from the passage more broadly. Number one, true faith is the instrument that connects us to the power of Jesus. It's instrumental. It's the means. Let me explain that. Think through the logic of this passage. Think through what we've seen so far. The disciples were authorized and commanded to do the work, but they failed the work specifically because of unbelief. And so they weren't able to access the power and authority that Jesus delegated to them because they lacked faith. Faith is the instrument. Christ was willing to work through them, but their faith was deficient to lay hold of the power of Jesus. So faith is the instrument through which we obtain Christ and all of his blessings. This is how the Christian life begins. 
This is how we gain Christ in, that, in the very beginning is through faith. Our faith doesn't save us. Our faith is the instrument, the means through which we receive Jesus, his righteousness, his life, all of his blessings. The Bible says it this way. We are saved through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. That Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 3 verse 17. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, 5, that Christians are guarded by the power of God through faith as we believe. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays for the Ephesian church, 119, that this church would know the exceeding greatness of God's power. And then he says, to those who believe, to those who believe. In other words, faith is always the instrument that connects us to Christ and all of his blessings. It's the necessary instrument. Faith is the instrument and the disciples needed this reminder and so do we. They had begun to suppose that the delegated authority flowed through them automatically. Apart from ongoing faith and prayer. In other words, they began to suppose that they could just go up to, you know, this person in this desperate condition and say the same thing that they said last time. And the same thing would just automatically happen apart from ongoing faith and prayer. They had drifted towards a mechanical view of ministry. And they, they even supposed that the supernatural power of Jesus Christ could be used at will instead of total dependence upon King Jesus. They stopped trusting. They were little faith. They were unbelieving in the promises of God. And so you see, faith is the instrument and their faith was lacking. And so there was no connection to Christ and his blessings in the presence of their unbelief. And so what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn this. The Christian life is not automatic. Okay? Your day-to-day -day walk with God is not supposed to feel like autopilot. Got saved when I was 19 on autopilot and I'll see Jesus in glory. It's not like that. The Christian life in Galatians 2.20 is a life of faith in the Son of God. In other words, we progress with Jesus Christ the same way that we started. We trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation and then we continue to depend on Him. We continue to trust in Jesus for everything. We aren't the source we don't have anything to give a lost and a needy world. We're just the vessels. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the, the, the fountain. And we are the vessels through whom God works. And we're not vessels that get filled up one time at the very beginning of the Christian life. And we don't need to be filled up again. That's not how the Christian life works. We need perpetual supply, perpetual replenishment. Uh, we need perpetual uh, 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 encouragement, power, uh, wisdom, day by day, ongoing. 
It's not a one and done. It's, 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 a, it's a constant dependence upon the Lord. And the only way we get this replenishment is through faith. It's what Jesus is teaching the twelve in this passage. The only way we get it is through faith. We have to continue to trust, continue to believe. You could even say it like this. We only draw water from the well of Christ's power with buckets of faith. It's the only way to get it. Can't get it out with any, any other means. This is the appointed instrument. This is the appointed means that connects us to Jesus Christ and all of his blessings is faith. You see how foundational faith is? That if we have it, it connects us to Jesus and all of his power and nothing is impossible for us. We'll get to that in a minute. And if we don't have it, we're powerless. We have nothing to give. We're empty vessels. Number two. True faith always has God's word as its object. The disciples in this, in this passage were not rebuked for a lack of positivity. And I say that for this reason. Sometimes faith is used as though it were this vague synonym with just being positive or, or just uh, a, an assurance of this positive outcome. In other words, sometimes people use, you just need to believe as though it were synonymous with, you just need to trust that it's all going to turn out. That's not biblical faith. The disciples are not rebuked in this passage for a lack of positivity. They're rebuked because they are not believing specific promises from Jesus Christ. We saw that in Matthew 10. He delegated his authority. He delegated his power to them. And they were not trusting his promises. Jesus is not calling us to just make up whatever we want and believe it. Jesus is not calling us to just this vague, general, positive outlook on life. That's not the faith that he's calling for here. That's not the faith that moves mountains. Real faith, true faith, always has as its object, not just general, vague positivity, but the word of God. The will of God revealed in the word of God. Just making up stuff and believing it. This is the false teaching of word of faith theology. That whatever just pops into your mind, you just blab it and grab it by faith. I want money. I want a new car. I want this. I want that. Just whatever pops in, boom, I'm going to believe it. That's not real faith. The object of that faith is whatever you want. It's not the word of God. True faith always has its object as the word of God. Faith is not barging into the throne room of heaven and start bossing around God to give you whatever you want. That's not faith. That's the opposite of faith. Faith submits to the Father. Not your will, but not, not my will, but your will be done. It's not faith. That's magic. Bossing God around is magic. Faith is trusting in the will of your Father that's revealed in His Word. Romans 10 17 says, Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Faith always looks to the word of God. Its object is the word of God. Number three. True faith is seen in its quality. Not in its quantity. Now I want to explain that. Because this is a, a, a little hard on, on the surface of verse 20. Okay, 
In verse 20, he says, the reason you couldn't do it, he said, because of your little faith. And you're thinking, okay, I got little faith. I just need more. Like if I'm a one on the scale, I need to be like a four. Okay. But the problem is the very next thing that Jesus says is if you have a mustard seed of faith, you can move mountains. You're like, wait a second. So I have little faith and I need more. But if I have little faith, I move mountains. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. In other words, the faith that the disciples lack at the beginning of verse 20, little faith, is not the same faith that Jesus commends in the middle of verse 20, mustard seed faith. It's not the same. And this is why it's better to understand little here as the disciples' faith lacking not in quantity, not that they're a one and they need to be a four, but a quality of faith. They have ineffectual faith. The quality of their faith is lacking, and they need sincere, uh, real faith. And if they have that, even if it's a grain of a mustard seed, it'll be effectual. So I think we're supposed to read this as faith lacking in quality, not in quantity. Your faith doesn't have to be big. It just has to be sincere and real. And the most important thing about your faith is always its object. What are you grabbing a hold of? How strong is the object of your faith? Sometimes when you you think about it in this quantitative way, that your faith is small and it just needs to be more, it takes the focus off the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, and the focus becomes your faith. Man, I just need to build my faith, build my faith. No, that's not how you build your faith. The focus stays on the object of your faith. The Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Number four. True faith moves mountains. And this is really the main point of our passage this morning. And we got some work to do. Okay, I'm just making assumptions. And I know you're supposed to do that. But I'm making assumptions that nobody in this room has ever moved a mountain. Okay. And we got a special place for you to sit if you think you have moved the mountain. We can talk about that, you know, later. But I'm just making that assumption, okay? And so let's, let's ask this question. Is verse 20, let me read it again. Jesus says this, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Is Jesus saying in verse 20 that if we have enough faith, we can realign the Rocky Mountains if we just really believe? Is that what Jesus is teaching in verse 20? Is verse 20 about geography or topography, uh, uh, changing the, the literal earthly landscape by faith or something else? And what I'm going to show you this morning is about something else, okay? Jesus is not referring to literally moving mountains, okay? We have to learn to read the Bible on its own terms. Something else is in view. The mountains that Jesus references here are spiritual mountains, not literal mountains, okay? Spiritual mountains, not literal mountains. I want to give you three reasons for why we should read this passage in this way. In other words, this is the right reading of Scripture. Why? Number one, 
No one in the entire Bible ever performs a miracle that rearranges literal landscapes. Moses, Elijah, David, none of the prophets, not even Jesus, none of the apostles, and nobody in church history. Okay? Which ought to at least tip us off. Maybe something else is up here. Okay? This is, if real faith does this and nobody's ever done this, maybe something else is up here. And I think that's exactly what we get as we move through uh, these reasons. Number two, in the context of Matthew 17, step back and think for a moment what just transpired. The mountain that they came up against in chapter 17 that they could not move was the boy, uh, the son who was demonized. They failed. Jesus leans in to teach them that if they really trust, the mountain will move. So in the context of chapter 17, uh, the opposition is spiritual opposition in the form of demon possession. It wasn't a literal mountain. And so even in the immediate context, we're talking about spiritual difficulties, not literal mountains. And then number three, as we broaden out to the context of the whole Bible, we find out that the word mountain often is used in Scripture in a metaphorical sense to refer to seemingly insurmountable spiritual obstacles. You see this in Isaiah's prophecy of the, uh, the coming of Jesus, those voice prophecies uh, of John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness. And around those prophecies in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 45, some of the imagery is that the mountains will be made into plains before the coming of the Lord. And so you have this imagery here of this voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and the mountains are going to be made into plains. Now we know that those prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist himself said he was the voice. He was the one crying out in the wilderness. And so we see all that imagery was fulfilled as these spiritual obstacles are removed, as the kingdom of God advances over spiritual obstacles. In other words, no literal mountains were rearranged when Jesus uh, came to us in the first coming of Jesus Christ. But probably the best place to see this is in Zechariah 4. So I want to invite you to turn back uh, just a few books in your Bible into the Old Testament prophet. And we'll look at Zechariah Chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. And notice that this is the unpacking of this vision of the lampstands. Zechariah 4 4. And the angel, and I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know? What these are. And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7 Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now I want you to notice in this prophecy of Zechariah, the context here is the rebuilding of God's temple in Jerusalem as the Jews come back from Babylonian captivity. And as they seek to rebuild this temple, there are obstacles all in the way of the people of God. You can see uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, all, all in this time period that they are rebuilding the temple in the face of great opposition. And I want you to notice in verse 7, the spiritual obstacles that stand in the way of rebuilding this temple are described as a mountain that will become a plain before Zerubbabel. In other words, God will use Zerubbabel for this rebuilding work, but not by his own might. It won't be by his might. It'll only be by the power of the spirit working through Zerubbabel. The mountain will then be moved. It will become a plain, which is why they're going to shout when it's finished. They're going to shout grace, grace to it. It's not going to be by human strength. These spiritual obstacles are going to be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. This same principle reappears in Matthew 17. This is what we're dealing with here. Jesus is calling his disciples to move mountains by faith. To remove spiritual obstacles that stand in the way of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And as he instructs us in this passage, you know, two things stand out. Number one, the mountains that we encounter should not surprise us. Why? Because the kingdom of God will always be opposed in this world. It'll be opposed to the very end. There are going to be mountains after mountains after mountains. In other words, there's never going to be a time in this age where the kingdom of God advances easy peasy. Never. It's always going to advance, conquering one mountain after another. Because this is conflict with the kingdom of darkness. It should not surprise us. The presence of opposition, the presence of obstacles should not surprise disciples of Jesus. But the mountains should also not discourage us. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Because the mountains can be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. This is the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage. He goes on to say in verse 20, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, of course, you would be hard pressed to find any words in Scripture that have been more abused than a phrase like that in God's word. Of course, this has been abused. Of course, people claim this promise in, in a way that God is bound to do whatever they want God to do. Whatever they want God to do. But this promise is given in a context. Okay? Nothing will be impossible for you is a promise given with a context. What does the context teach us? In context, this promise refers to the accomplishment 
of the miraculous works of the kingdom for which the twelve apostles were authorized. That's the context. The context also reminds us that even Jesus, who had perfect faith and all power to do all miracles, that even Jesus was not kept from suffering. Look at verse 22. He says, I'm going to be killed. In other words, the context of Matthew 17 destroys word of faith theology. It destroys prosperity theology. In other words, to, to make that work, to make those systems work, what you have to do is grab this promise and detach it from everything in its context. It doesn't work. It's not what it means. The promise is the same to us, but it applies in a different way. In other words, the promise is nothing will be impossible for us that we have been authorized to do. And the twelve were authorized to do the works of the twelve. And we're not apostles and Jesus hasn't authorized us to do the works of the apostles. But Jesus has authorized us to bear witness in his name. We have been authorized by Jesus Christ to bear witness in his name. And so there's a promise for you here in this passage. And I want you to see it. And I want you to believe it. I want you to be encouraged by it. That nothing is impossible for you that you have been authorized to do if you trust God. Not one thing. Not one thing. That is the the promise of this passage. Our great business in this world is to see men and women... Old and young, delivered from the power of the devil. And we do this by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We are his witnesses that have received the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ to the ends of the earth. And if we trust God, nothing that Jesus has sent us to do will be impossible for us. The context limits Really, limits is not the right word because this promise is as big as God. Nothing will be impossible for you. But we read this promise in its context. In its context. If we believe. Somebody might be thinking, you know, this is a little too spiritual for me. Sounds like we're spiritualizing, you know, this uh, language of Jesus a little too much. And I just want to respond. Actually, the, uh, actually, the passage is supposed to be read this way. This is not spiritualizing allegory. The passage is supposed to be. So the literal way you're supposed to read this promise from Jesus is spiritually. That's the right reading of this text. Or you could even say it this way. Bulldozers are for moving literal mountains. And faith is for moving spiritual mountains. Okay. This is not spiritualizing allegory. This is just reading the word of God as it's meant to be read. If you have faith, nothing that God has called you to do will be impossible for you. Are you encouraged by that? That's what he means that to be for us. He meant to encourage the twelve with the power of faith. And he means to encourage us this morning with the power of faith. Nothing will be impossible that he has called us to do if we trust in the Lord. 
You get a wonderful example in Hebrews 11 of mountain-moving faith. A lot of different examples in that chapter, but I'll read uh, just two verses. What does this look like in in, in real life, in the real world? This is a good picture. Hebrews 11, verse 33 and 34. Men and women who through faith conquered kingdoms, who through faith enforced justice, who through faith obtained promises, who through faith stopped the mouths of the lions, who through faith quenched the power of fire, who through faith escaped the edge of the sword, who through faith were made strong out of weakness, who through faith became mighty in war, even putting foreign armies to flight. And I believe the application is clear. How do we live this passage out? In the present hour, mountains stand in the way of the agenda of Jesus Christ. It'll be this way until the very end. Our Lord will be opposed at every turn. There are mountains of opposition in your life. There are mountains of opposition among the nations. And the only way they're coming down is through faith and prayer. That's it. But if you trust, if you believe, they're coming down. That's what Jesus says. Three times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says something like this. Let it be done for you as you have believed. I want you to be reminded of how foundational faith is in the life of a Christian. Our Lord says, let it be done to you as you have believed. How's your faith? How's your faith this morning in the word of God, in the son of God? You need to trust God. We need to live upon God's word as our bread. We need to be men and women of prayer in this world. You know the danger? It's all around us of having our heads slammed full of theology and little bitty hearts of faith, little bitty prayer lives lacking that stamp of authenticity and sincerity and even power upon our lives. How do we get that? Through faith and prayer. It's the only way. Through faith and prayer. The Christian life is a life of faith. Therefore, the Christian life is a life of prayer. Oftentimes, and I'll jump in the same group with you. Okay, oftentimes in the face of difficulty, we are so guilty of reaching for everything besides the one thing that Jesus told us would bring down the mountain. We are so guilty of that conflict on every side, obstacle comes and we go easy button. Where's the easy button? I want this gone. I want this to go away. Or we go, you know, is there a side road around this obstacle? Right here, and Jesus is saying in this passage, the only way to bring it down is through faith and prayer. We have to trust God. There is no other plan. We have to trust the Lord. And so we should come against the things that stand in the way of us becoming more like Jesus Christ. We should oppose those things with faith and prayer. We should apply this personally. We should apply this corporately. The things that hindered the ministry of the word in this local church. We need a gospel ministry 
at Grace Community Church that's clothed with otherworldly power. And we need to oppose all that would hinder that with faith and prayer. This applies globally. There is nothing more resisted in this world than the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ among the nations. Nothing. And we need to oppose those things that stand in the way of that advance through faith and prayer. And here's the thing. Nothing else is bringing them down. Nothing else is bringing them down. This is why it shouldn't surprise us at all that the twelve, they never asked Jesus, no record in the Gospels, of them saying, Lord Jesus, can you please teach us how to preach? We don't have any record of that. Neither do we have any record of the twelve saying, Lord Jesus, can you please teach us how to do miracles? But we do have explicit words from these men who walk with Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to call upon the Father. And I want you to be reminded this morning of how foundational it is for you to trust your God. Trust Him. As we close with verse 23, Jesus prophesies another great contrast in Matthew 17. So we had the first contrast is from transfiguration to this scene of conflict. But I want you to, to pay attention to this second contrast. He says, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. What a contrast. The son of man is the Daniel 12 heavenly figure. Who's given the kingdom by the ancient of days, God the Father. And Jesus says, that one, the Son of Man, this transfigured Lord, this glorious one is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Puny men. How could this be? How could it be that the one who's destined to rule men will be killed by men? And I'll mention three things very quickly. Number one, this delivering over into the hands of men is voluntary. In other words, he's going to suffer at the hands of men voluntarily. He's not going to be conquered. He's not going to be overpowered. He is going to lay down his life willingly. This is what he does for sinners. He willingly lays down his life. Number two, this suffering is going to be substitutional. In other words, when he's killed by men, when he's, killed, when he's delivered into the hands of men, and he's killed by men, he's willingly submitting himself to this because when they kill him, he's actually dying as a sin, uh, a sacrificial sin offering to God the Father. He's dying as a substitute. He's not being killed for his own sins. He's being slaughtered for the sins of his people. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then thirdly, I want you to know that this suffering is victorious. Notice that Jesus says in verses, verse 23, not only will he be killed, but he says on the third day I'm coming out. On the third day he will be raised. On the third day Jesus prophesies that he will conquer death. Not only will he be killed, but he will be raised. His power will overcome death and his sacrifice will overcome sin. And on the basis of that suffering that Jesus prophesies, he saves sinners. On the basis of that suffering, he saves us. Only by, the, only by saving faith in Jesus can the accusing voice of the devil be silenced. 
and the mountain of condemnation be pulled up and thrown into the sea forever. We should believe upon the Lord Jesus. We should trust Him. And make that personal. You should believe upon the Lord Jesus and live. You should trust Him. You should trust Him. This is why He came into this world. To die and to rise and to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we call on Your name today. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. And we pray, God, that You would cause it to be a seed that bears fruit in our hearts and in this church. God, make us obedient Make us full of faith. Lord, fill us with confidence in the face of every obstacle, in the face of every hindrance. Fill us with faith, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.